nurses and hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. Being a kid is tough. And what's even tougher is being a kid diagnosed with treatment-resistant depression. And what that means is no matter what type of antidepressant medication your healthcare practitioner puts you on, it just doesn't seem to be working. In this episode, we continue looking at ketamine as it's being used as a treatment for depression, anxiety, and PTSD. I'm joined by storyteller Emerson Dameron as he takes us through his journey with ketamine. But first, a word from our sponsor. Nurses and nursing students, all healthcare workers really, we have a lot of documents to keep up with, and unfortunately, care facilities don't help much. That's where Nurse Backpack comes in. This app is great. It's easy, it's free, and now you can carry all those licenses, credentials, records, and things your workplace wants on your phone. You can even add work history and other records like CEs. To add or update your info, type it in or photograph the docs front and back. It's really that simple. And then all you have to do is set reminder dates for expirations and renewals. You're putting a lot in there. So Nurse Backpack is already secured for you. Plus you choose when and if you share your resume. You can send it to yourself, your manager, or as a job application just with a few clicks. You're not a filing cabinet. You're a healthcare professional. Don't let paperwork cause mischiefs or worse. This is the most complete document assistant you can get for healthcare. It's an app and it's free. Download Nurse Backpack today. And welcome to the show, Emerson Dameron. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. So I just want to tell people how we met because I love the Los Angeles storytelling community. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast. It's one of the reasons why I'm talking to you today. But we told a story together. I believe the first one was at Bear Burger. And it was like the scary story. uh, Santa Monica, the dearly departed Bear Burger. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Now defunct. Right. We did our uh, storytelling show, our nurses and hypochondriac storytelling show there in 2017. But we told a story that I think about a year ago, right, for mm-hmm. the Halloween show. Yeah, and it was at Chris Corbell's Halloween show at Bear Burger. That's correct. And I met your lovely wife and we bonded over our Louis Vuitton handbags. And that's how I found out mine was retired. So, Yeah, she's a fountain of information about that stuff. love her she's amazing to love her okay so today we're going to be talking about ketamine injections this is our part two so our part one episode we had with dr deborah gambrell who is an anesthesiologist and she is giving patients ketamine injections mostly be mostly ptsd patients and patients suffering through chronic depression now, the reason why you're here is? I have received ketamine infusions for PTSD and chronic depression. 
And how did you come about learning about ketamine? It was a long road. Um, I have always been an introvert and showed signs of having some depressive tendencies as early as grade school. I mean, pretty much all my life uh, I've been, it has been colored by that to some degree. Um, I have tried probably two dozen antidepressant drugs in my life. Uh, when I was a teenager, I was on uh, probably half a dozen medications at once, Prozac, Pamelar, Dizipramine, Xanax, Lithium. They were just throwing stuff at the wall to see what worked. And it was not anything that seemed to be working. I have what's called treatment-resistant depression, which is pretty much what it sounds like. Uh, I've tried a lot of different medications, have not gotten a lot of great results. I've also done a lot of self-medication, mostly with alcohol, um, which was has had uneven results at best, and I think also kind of obscured the depression and made it harder to get at it because, you know, was the problem the depression or the alcoholism? Was I depressed because I was drinking? Was I drinking because I was depressed? That went on for many, many years, uh, in which time I was in and out of treatment. I was hospitalized at one point. You know, for a while, it seemed like things would get better. My life would get more stable. And then I, I would be back into the, uh, into the breach and, be, and try new medications and try all kinds of different treatments. And nothing really seemed to do the trick. I uh, have always been interested in self-development and meditation and personal growth. So I've been involved in kind of psychedelic drug adjacent worlds, experimental art and music and whatnot. Uh, my drug of choice was always alcohol. Um, I have smoked a little weed. Uh, I think I did acid earlier in my life, but I have never really done a lot of psychedelics. But I started reading articles about four years ago that uh, ketamine was getting some major results in PTSD treatment for veterans. And I was very curious about it. Uh, just the stuff I was reading was very encouraging. At that point, I'd stopped drinking, uh, but you know, I a lot of my friends were into psychedelic drugs, and I've always been pro awareness expanding drugs. I guess I would call them. Uh, there are, to my mind, awareness expanding drugs, which include psychedelics and dissociatives like ketamine, potentially, uh, which we'll get into. Uh, and awareness contracting drugs like booze and cocaine, which can be fun, but in my experience, I get mixed results from those. And there's usually some, some debt to pay off, to pay off the good times. Uh, but I, I was aware of people giving ketamine infusions around town. Generally, that costs thousands of dollars. I didn't have thousands of dollars. Was that in Los Angeles or? Yeah. I lived in LA at that point. And I 
ended up getting a chance to try it through uh, UCLA's Depression Grand Challenge. Uh, it was a clinical trial for ketamine infusions as kind of a frontier treatment for depression that had not yielded to other kinds of treatment. So I went into UCLA and got some MRIs. I filled out a lot of questionnaires, answered a lot of questions about my life and my experience and my feelings, and also received some ketamine infusions. So that's how I ended up getting to try it the first time. I just want to go back a little bit before we start talking about what happened to you when you got the infusions. When you were a kid and you were having these depressive episodes, what was going on? Do you remember like what was going on at school or your home life? I was very lonely. Uh, My parents got divorced when I was a teenager, but that was kind of a process that unspooled over many years. So, you know, I had kind of a dark home life for a while. I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't really fit in. I was having a tough time. And uh, I don't know if I was singled out kind of early on. I, I was sent to counseling when I was 10 or 11. And I don't know if that helped or made things worse, maybe a little bit of both. But I had I thought of myself as a depressed person pretty early on, and that may have contributed to it. And was it your parents that took you in to get treatment, or was it a teacher that said something? I mean, because sometimes I feel taking care of kids, people or parents, or they don't even think there's anything wrong with their child. They're kind of just ignoring the situation. I think my my mom definitely knew and my teachers were aware of it. I think the signs were there. You know, even my grandmother remarked on it. Uh, So it wasn't really much of a secret. What, like, what would your grandmother say? Oh, just that I seemed like a sad kind of detached kid. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah, it was just my defining characteristic from pretty early in my life. So what brought you to Los Angeles in the first place? Because I remember you telling a story, and it was really interesting, and you kind of ended up living in a box of sorts. That was the second time I moved to Los (laughs) Angeles. Um, The first time was for a, a writing job. Uh, I think I've always channeled a lot of my uh, pain into writing. Like that's been one thing that's always helped was the catharsis of writing and doing comedy and kind of spinning my own uh, miserable experiences into things that could be funny for other people that's always been extremely gratifying and I've always done a lot of that. So that's how I, the first time I moved to LA was in 2008, which was for a writing job. I moved back to Chicago, which is where my family is based during the recession. And I always wanted to come back to LA, which I ended up doing in 
2015. And yeah, that's when I discovered how completely insane the real estate market is here now, which led to me living in something called pod chair for about three months. And that was literally like a bed, right? Like a little pod. It was like a submarine cabin. Yeah, I had a bunk bed that I lived in uh, in a room with about 20 other such bunk beds. Wow, fascinating. But at that time, did that make your depression worse living with these people or in that fashion or did it alleviate it in a way? Because you're kind of living the dream. You're in Los Angeles. You have a writing job. I mean, surrounded by people. Surrounded by people. Yeah, I don't know if it was great for depression, but it was good for my safety, honestly. I mean, having all those people around probably kept me above water just because I didn't feel like I had the liberty to completely fall apart in front of a bunch of strangers. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, no, it totally does. Um, Having all of those eyes on me kept me safe in a sense. Safe and accountable. You know, you're like, uh, people are watching me. I think I got to live. Because a big part of depression is feeling so small that, you are not aware how your life could possibly be relevant to other people's lives. You know, you don't really see how your actions affect other people. You just feel completely inconsequential, which is the big lie of depression. Because when you do have people around, especially if they're supportive, but in some cases, even if they're just there, you're more aware of your own interdependence and how you're connected with the rest of the world. And in my experience, that has kept me alive in, in some instances. That's a great analogy. Uh, so going into the ketamine, ketamine we know is, was a synonymous party drug. Uh, it's used. It has or, been used that way, yes. It has and also as a horse tranquilizer. A horse tranquilizer, and also it is used in some surgeries. It was used in the battlefields, I think, in World War One, as we talked about. That's right, Gambrell. And uh, you know, like I said, it's still used in some surgeries. I just spoke to a nurse anesthetist the other day, and he was like, "Yeah, I use ketamine in in um, anesthesia." So. You made the decision, you you went to the UCLA study, you got the ketamine. Do you remember what happened during the ketamine? I mean, were you lucid? Were you dreaming? I mean, what was your state of mind? Do you remember? It was, I would say, it felt like an out-of-body experience. It's the thing I would compare it to is when uh, like Wiley Coyote gets run over by a bulldozer and you see his ghost rising up out of his flat carcass, that's kind of how it felt. Like I felt like I was leaving my body and kind of rising up and able to see my life as an objective third party. That the experience I had of it was, it was a lot of flashing images and diagrams and 
I was able to see things in a more detached, abstract way. Like I could see things breaking down and fragmenting and I could kind of analyze my own experiences and a lot of my assumptions about things and the ingrained habits of mind and behavior that I have um, from a detached third party perspective. And that was to me what was tremendously valuable about it. I got a huge amount of insight from that part of the experience. I know in some of the ketamine-based treatments that are being made legally available uh, now, or I don't know if they're available yet. I know that they're supposedly going the to be. The spray is, yes, it, it the is. Spray, the spray, yeah. The, the, the nasal the spray. Stuff. Right. And we talked about that in uh, our previous episode with Dr. Gambrell. It is FDA approved and mm-hmm. they are giving it to uh, vets. And uh, even President Trump was for right. it. He's all they, for it. He's all for it. However, what Dr. Gambrell did say, it doesn't work as well as a ketamine injections because what she's doing is when you dissociate, like when you you know, remove yourself from your body as you, your experience that you just explained, what she does is she'll bring you back into consciousness. And what she does is she taps into wherever your trauma is mm. and she tries to alleviate that in another way. Because what, what she found, cause she um, did a whole study uh, on her own and she was financed by someone and you know, and this is what she found to be valid. It worked better than not bringing someone back to consciousness, having a person there. You know, it's just like when you undergo anesthesia and you come out of your anesthesia, either you'll have an anesthesiologist there or most times you'll have a nurse in post-op, you know, bringing uh-huh. you back. You know, the nurse will see you uh, wrestling uh, awake. I've worked in post-op and then you go and you kind of just, you know, tap the person and say, okay, this is where you're at. You bring them back into consciousness and back into this reality. So was there someone there with you? I mean, what were you told was going to happen? Were you told that you were going to dissociate and this was all going to happen? Or did they just let you have the experience on your own? And then you reported to the researchers what happened to you? I'll give you the longer answer to that. Uh, The people in the UCLA Grand Challenge program were very supportive. They told me what to expect. uh, And they were, you know, they were there for me physically in a way that made me feel very safe. It wasn't a hospital setting, which is a little cold and clinical for for some people's tastes. I felt like I was totally safe. Uh, The I think more relevant answer is I'd been working up to this for a long time. Uh, I had been doing a daily meditation practice for a long time and I connected with a lot of people through something called the aware project, which is a psychedelic advocacy group in LA in the psychedelic drug community who are focused on harm reduction and kind of 
integrating psychedelic experiences with life in productive ways. You know, some of them are therapists, some of them are um, with scientific apparatuses of some kind or another. Some of them are in the festival world and focused on harm reduction at Burning Man or in, uh, in big concert experiences. I think the Zindo Project is one where if you're having a bad trip at a, at a festival, they, will, they, get, they have a tent and you can go in there and they will talk you down. So you don't end up dealing with the police or paramedics. You have people that know what's going on and will talk you through it. I started hanging out with a lot of those people and that's what really prepared me for the experience in a way that helped me get a lot more out of it. I think, you know, I had talked, I'd had really extensive conversations and done a lot of reading to prepare for what that was going to be like. And I think the, the psychedelic dissociative part of the ketamine experience was the most valuable thing about it. I'm told that with the, the nasal spray, you don't get as much of that, that it's, they've isolated some of the antidepressant effects of ketamine from the psychedelic experience. And maybe it's safer that way. I mean, I don't, I can't necessarily say that without the right set and setting, it would have been valuable, possibly it would have been really confusing and triggering and would have made things worse. That really, your mileage may vary a lot that way. But for me, the dissociative druggy part of the ketamine experience was tremendously valuable. There's no way I would have gotten as much out of it without that part of it. So after, did you talk to a therapist about your experiences and about like the whole purpose of the dissociation? Because my thinking and understanding of the dissociation is like you said, so you can look at your life and then whatever trauma that you were having, it's Uh a bit of a release. Like you're just letting go of whatever trauma, whatever darkness, wherever you were at in your consciousness. If you've been hiding from something, it's going to come up. You know, when you let go of your, a lot of your habitual coping mechanisms, you will get access to that stuff. Uh, I personally don't think that it will come up until you're ready to deal with it. I just believe that we have kind of inner healing and caretaking mechanisms that will bring up stuff as we're ready to deal with it. And if we can, and that's an opportunity to do it skillfully, which is easier said than done. But I talked with therapists and with my meditation teacher. And by that time I had a lot of support in my life. You know, there are times when I did not have a lot, like if I'd done ketamine when I was in pod share, who knows what would have happened. It probably wouldn't have been as beneficial, but I was able to work through a lot of things that I'd been hiding from when I kind of shook the snow globe and brought all of that stuff up, I had laid the groundwork for it before. 
where I was able to do something positive with it. And I would say the long-term effects have been, it, it wasn't this huge breakthrough where the sun came through the clouds and now everything's going to be different. And I'm sort of glad I didn't have that experience because I don't really trust experiences like that. I think that's a short ride. What it did for me is it just shifted the window of what I was able to think about and made it a little bit wider. So when I, am, I realize I'm about to get stuck in something or I'm about to spiral out, it creates new opportunities to not do that. Like if there's a train that pulls up that I know is going somewhere I don't want to be, I don't have to get on it the way that I felt like I did before. I can let it go and get on another train that's going somewhere else. And I think that's been the long-term effect of it is it's just made, because I had that experience of not being associated with my thoughts or my ego in a very vivid way, I'm able to step away from those things now if, when I need to more effectively than I maybe was in the past. I think what happens with the dissociations, because I study this, the conscious and the subconscious mind uh, very rigorously. So I've been studying it for about a year, about two years, very intensely. And um, I've done some uh, shamanic experiences myself uh, without psychedelics, just with uh, being in a meditative state. I've worked on some people. I myself before uh, was going through hypnotherapy for about six years. And the same thing kind of happens, but it does take a long time. I mean, it it did take a long time. So what I think happens is, you know, our subconscious mind is like our computer program where everything gets embedded from the year zero to seven. You know, it's uh-huh. our religion, it's our upbringing, what our parents tell us and everything. So it gets stuck in there and whatever traumas uh, can get stuck in there too. And then it's like- There's stuff on your desktop from like the 90s that you forgot was there that's still exactly. affecting your performance. Exactly. And all of a sudden in your life, you're creating this story, you know? Uh, And I just started teaching a class, like changing your story and really looking at what's in your subconscious, you know, Uh, and and looking around you and looking at what you create, you know, and sometimes it's hard to do, especially when you've um, had such a trauma, because every time you come up, like you said, every time that train comes up and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, here it is again. Kind right, of like, I, know, I know how this is going to go. I know how this is going to go. And why is this happening to me again? And that was happening right. to me personally. And it would flip me out. Like I would get triggered and I would have panic attack, you know, and I just would kind of step away. And people don't understand from the outside who are looking in and see that, that that is what's going on in your head, you know, and they just think you're like crazy or you're just creating drama or things just like, why, yeah, why don't you just chill out? Yeah. Right? Why don't you just chill out? Why don't you just stop? Why are you creating drama? Why are you creating problems all the time? You know, and they don't get it that that's your programming and that's what you're stuck doing. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a robot in a way. Uh, until you start changing and shifting those patterns. But it's really magical 
once those patterns shift, because I still, now I do it on my own because I understand the technique and, um, and, and it's hard to do, but I'm like, oh, this is fascinating. And I've even studied movies. Like I've studied, you know, Groundhog's Day is one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. You know? Because Undisputed classic. Right. And it's because that's what's going on to the, to the protagonist, you know? He's in this karmic cycle that doesn't break. I mean, it, it's almost like he gets this ketamine, he dissociates, and then he cha- starts changing his habits, and his life changes, right? Right. He, can, he kind of leaves the wheel of life and death in a way. Right. Right. So it's or he's very- able to see what's going on and kind of play with it and understand it differently. Very good. Yeah, exactly. Or it's almost like uh, with um, the the movie with Will Ferrell, I'm like forgetting the name now, um, Stranger Than Fiction. There we go. I've not seen that. You have not. You have to see Stranger Than Fiction because it's almost like a Groundhog's Day where Will Ferrell is doing the same thing over and over again. He's very boring. He's doing the same thing. It's kind of like he's a robot. And until he starts hearing his voice in his head and it's a narrator narrating his life, and until he's threatened with death, does he start changing? Um, And does he start shifting and looking at things? He's like, okay, why are you telling me I'm going to die? You know, so he starts to wake up in a sense and slowly... Uh, there's a turn of events that keep happening and, and the narrator tries to kill him and he's trying to figure out who this narrator is that tries to kill him. So great movie. Uh, yeah, um, I've got to see this. You have to see it. It's totally on the subject matter and stuff. So I saw it before I did. I, I was getting an intuition to watch this movie uh, before I did a um, shamanic ritual with someone who I saw many dissociations, you know, many childhood traumas that he had going on. And I kind of exercised them. I was like, hey, I see, you know, we were in a meditative state and I, I told him what I saw. And he came out and he started telling me the stories that were behind these childhood traumas, these dissociations were, were, that were happening. And these were manifesting in his life in profound ways. So it was pretty wild. So he um, told those stories. We were able to rectify them with a positive story to make it stronger. And he did have some changes. I mean, of course, it wasn't a one-time fix-all, you know? Right. Uh, he, and I had, because it was just too much for me, it was too heavy. So I had told him that, you know, you need to go and get some real therapy. So like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we did what we did and he saw the positives, which were great, but he was also self-medicating. It was very sad. You know, it's like, you don't need to do this. It's just like, you know, and there is a time and a place where you are ready to let that go. You're ready to let those demons go. Uh, those traumas, dissociations, whatever you want to call them. Uh, because what happens is when we're children, it's like we hide them. You know, I've right. worked with abused kids, uh, sexual abuse kids. I've had people come on the show who uh, have had, have been sexually abused and they hide those traumas. It's like they bury them down deep. And so they start manifesting in their lives and then either they go talk to a therapist or they 
start having certain symptoms, start self-medicating, and then there is a time when they're ready to let them go. Mm -hmm. So you got the first treatment. What did you see change in your life? I got four treatments over the course of two weeks uh, when I was in the UCLA program. And one of the uh, parts of the clinical trial was that I needed to keep an audio diary. I just called, there was a number I could call in and talk about what was going on in my life. Uh, they give you, you have to keep talking for three minutes, which doesn't seem like a lot of time, but if you just start talking and keep talking for three minutes, a lot of interesting things can come up that you didn't expect. And what I noticed was just that I was able to have a little bit more analytical distance and detachment from my experiences. The way I was telling stories about my life changed a little bit in that I more options opened up. Like I realized that there were potentially five or six different ways that I could describe what was going on in my life. And I, there was some selection involved. I had some choice in what I was going to say. And I had not felt like that before. I felt like I almost physically got dragged into this one way of experiencing things and thinking about myself and talking about myself and my life. And what I noticed after I did the ketamine was just that there was a lot more flexibility or not even a lot, just a little bit more flexibility. It just moved things a little bit wider. And that was a real relief. You know, rather than having one big epiphany and feeling good for a week and then kind of getting back, back to normal, it just opened things up a little bit. And that really helped. Yeah, because I think the neurotransmitters in your brain are starting to rewire, you know, because uh -huh. we're so stuck in an addiction that that's what happens. It's, right. it's hard to change that. It takes like 30, 60, sometimes even 90 days to change those neurotransmitters and to change your, those patterns. But the good thing is our brain has neuroplasticity in it and we can change, you know, those uh -huh. patterns. So then, and that's about the, the length of time that the ketamine opened up. Um, I had about 90 days to think a little bit differently and act a little bit differently and develop some new, better habits and experience other people a little bit differently. And uh, in my experience, it wasn't a permanent thing. I did need to do more ketamine infusions. And at this point, I'm doing it about three or four times a year. Uh, I, my ketamine uh, guy is Dr. Terrence Early in Santa Barbara, who's one of the original pioneers of using ketamine as a treatment for depression. Like he's uh, part of he's sort of a titan of that world and is he a psychiatrist it, or yeah he's okay. a he's a psychiatrist and is very good at kind of setting the the right setting for that and talking me through the experience 
so are the so they're infusions that go through your veins correct mm -hmm. yeah and they stick a needle in your arm and then uh you uh you go out pretty quickly by experience what does the room look like that you're in it like you said it's not your conventional hospital room yeah at dr early's there's a weighted blanket uh, and you wear a blindfold. Uh, it's a blindfold that's designed so that if you open your eyes, it's still pitch dark. So you're in my experience, I'm pretty safe from any sort of disturbances in the environment. Like I might hear creaks or laughter from another room, but I'm in my own cocoon for the most part and it's your, very your sensory your all your sen your your sensory devices are all shut down basically right for the he does part. put on some music uh, the thing that i like the most is eric satie or any sort of piano music uh with a lot of mathematical figures just makes the experience a lot more compelling but it's very safe I would not try to do it listening to loud techno music. I mean, some people do more power to them in my, it's much, a much better experience for me if I'm in a cocoon. Yeah, because you just kind of have to be there with your consciousness in a way right. or your your subconsciousness that's what i'm thinking it's kind yeah, it gives of gives me like, the opportunity to get to know myself right it's kind of like in stranger things when l just shuts down everything and she goes into that realm to talk right. to well, that's she, she what she's in is a, a sensory deprivation float tank Right, right. And, but then sometimes she'll put her, they don't have her in the float tank, but then she'll put herself like. I in always it. thought season one. So oh, that, okay. I, <laughs> but I thought it was interesting because, yeah, that's, I, I've been in those. And uh, yeah, it's that kind of experience. Yeah. And in and, and season four, then she kind of learns how to do it on her own. It's kind of like doing meditation. Like uh, you, you're able to go into a different consciousness pretty quickly. It's like she's learned it and then she kind of, you know, just puts on the blindfold and goes. So like, right. the more what you do it, do. the more at home you are there. Right, exactly. So wrapping up, anything you would like to add with the ketamine? It's certainly helped your life, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, it's the most helpful thing that I've ever done. Um, and I am glad it's becoming more widely available. Uh, I am curious to see how that goes. I don't necessarily trust the pharmaceutical industry to, uh, to do it well. And I think something is going to be lost when that sort of shamanistic underground side of it. I, I hope that stays around because well, I think that it's part needed. of it. I think it's needed as yes, in our absolutely. previous episode, uh, Dr. Gambrell does say that that is one of the most important components to it all. And she did quote a study 
where uh, it was used on vets who had had PTSD, but they were just like lined up in a room and it was just a cold room and they didn't get the same effects as people in your situation to kind of really experience that consciousness and that dissociation and uh-huh. then come out of it and to have someone either there or to have someone just kind of go through what happened and their whole experience with them. Yeah, I think that the war on drugs should have ended a long time ago. And I'm glad that prohibition is breaking up. I'm honestly glad that it's getting commercialized, if that makes it more widely available. I mean, I'm glad that you can get access to this stuff without knowing a bunch of secret handshakes or going to Burning Man or being cool. But I hope that it's kept weird to some degree because the weirdness of that experience was the best thing about it for me. Yeah, I I totally agree. I totally agree. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and telling us your story. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, and, and and how stories are so important because I know you probably further your healing by telling stories on stage. Oh, absolutely. And so yeah, I there- you got to do. I think uh, take my last words are take ketamine and take an improv class. You'll be glad <laughs> you did. I love it. Is there anything you would like to pitch anywhere people can find you, follow you on social media? Yeah, you could follow me on Twitter. There's not a whole lot going on there at the moment because I'm working on a book. But if you follow me there, I'll invite you to my shows around LA and you'll be there when things really kick into high gear, which should be happening sometime this year. Great. And uh, I'll go ahead and put your Twitter information at the end of our show notes. Thank you again, nurses and hypochondriacs. Bye. Stay focused and organized. One way you could do that is by downloading the Nurse Backpack app, which enables you to keep all your credentials in one place and to send it to your nurse manager, your recruiter, or to that next dream job download the app today. The link is located in our show notes. The World Health Organization has designated 2020 as the year of the nurse and midwife. In honor of the 200th birth anniversary of Florence Nightingale. And did you know that nurses have an 18-year running streak of being the number one most ethical and honest profession in all of America? Rogue Nurse Media 501c3 is going warp speed into this 2020 year of the nurse. We're sponsoring art exhibitions, murals, networking events, movie screenings, and writing webinars to promote the positive image of nurses in the media. We'd love for you to join our team. We're looking for volunteers and sponsors to help us go forward with this amazing journey. For more information, email us at nursesandhypochondriacs at gmail.com. And oh, don't forget to go ahead and give us a five-star rating on iTunes.